Stand with me as we read God's Word together. Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Please be seated. Please bow with me. Lord, please bless Your Word. Please bless Your people. Bless us as we have come seeking to be faithful to You. To gather to fellowship, to worship, and to hear You speak to us through Your Word. Lord, speak to Your people. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. I didn't read the inscription, there's not much to talk about in the inscription, to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Evidently, this, uh, the servant of the Lord statement in the inscription is only also in Psalm 18. And Psalm 18 is obviously uh, pre-David being king. He's running from Saul. So some take this to say that this psalm is also pre-King David. Could be, we don't know. And I don't know how we can know. But thankfully, I don't think it matters. For our psalm this morning, the background information is not going to be super important. To outline it, give you an idea of where we're going, got a lot of P's. I like alliteration, I think it's helpful. So, verses 1 through 4, you're going to see the plight that David has because of the wicked. Verses 5-6, through you're going to see the pervasiveness of God's steadfast love. In verses 7-9, through you're going to see the preciousness of God's steadfast love. In verses 10-12, through you're going to see the persistence of God's steadfast love. And then we're going to come and make gospel application at the end. And one of the things you may have noticed, even in just reading it and in the outline, there is a hard gear shift 
between verse 4 and verse 5. And, of course, this is an opportunity for liberal scholars to do liberal scholar things and say that these are different psalms smashed together, different authors, different time periods, whatever. There's no reason for any of that. I think as we reflect upon the psalm, I think the hard perspective shift is actually going to be beneficial for us as we contemplate what's going on in this psalm. So, let's begin. Looking at the first four verses and David's plight against the wicked. This is a lament about his enemies. There's just a comment on it. There's translation difficulties in verse 1. It all revolves around uh, the pronoun used, whether it's deep in his heart in the ESV or in other translations, deep in my heart. Um, And it's difficult. People go back and forth. Lots of people I respect are on different sides of it. Again, I don't think it's going to matter a whole lot for the overall meaning of the psalm because you're either getting at transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart, that there is a deep transgression of the wicked, deep-seated that is in the heart of the wicked, or you're saying that David has a deep understanding in his heart of how wicked the wicked are. And either way, I don't think is going to be determinative of where we go from here. So I'm going to stick with the ESV just because that's what's in front of me. But I just want to acknowledge that there is translational issues. You can look into that yourself if you want. But what I want to focus on, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And this is supposed to be a stunning indictment. Something that is uh, really awful to hear. That someone has no fear of God before their eyes. This should be striking. And what can we say about those who have no fear of God before their eyes? What kind of people are people that have no fear of God before their eyes? Well, Proverbs would tell us that they're fools. Because Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So when David says these enemies have no fear of God before their eyes, there is no godly wisdom in these people. Because they don't fear God, which is the source of wisdom. We know they are profoundly wicked. I think this is fascinating. In Genesis 20... When Abraham, yes, lies about the status of his wife because he's fearful of what Abimelech may do and he's wrong in doing that. But when he explains why he did it, it's really interesting. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Why did you lie to me about the status of your wife? What does Abraham say? He says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. And so you see Abraham's mind. There's no fear of God. It's synonymous with rampant wickedness. And so I expected that if I told you the truth about my wife, you would just kill me and take my wife. You don't fear God. Why would you do anything different? Again, that doesn't justify Abraham in what he did. But it does help us understand what it means in our 
biblical history of what we're looking at with a lack of fear of God. Also interestingly, Luke, Jesus, in the parable of the persistent widow, Jesus wants to paint this picture of a wicked judge. The most wicked judge you can imagine. And how does he describe this judge? This judge says, in a cer- or Christ says, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected him. And so Jesus is trying to make an exaggerated example of a wicked judge. And what does he say? There was a judge in this city who feared God, or did not fear God and did not respect him. And so this picture you get when we talk about no fear of God before their eyes, there's no wisdom. There's wickedness. And we can walk through the rest of these verses in verses 1 through 4. I think David gives us a bit of a description even here of what it means to have no fear of God before your eyes. In verse 2, those who have no fear of God before their eyes flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. In other words, he deceives himself purposefully. He has a higher estimation of himself than is accurate. And he has no intention of searching his own heart to find iniquity and repent of it and hate it. He loves himself. I think of Terrell Owens, that line, the end of the football player, loud big mouth. He says, I love me some me. That's, that's all of us outside of Christ. We all love me some me. And when we, do, when we live that way, we flatter ourselves that our iniquity might not be found out and hated. What else can we see about those who have no fear of God before their eyes? They deceive others in verse 3. So they deceive their, themselves in verse 2. They deceive others in verse 3. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. So you're getting a picture here. There's a lack of wisdom. There's a propensity to wickedness. There's a self-deception. There's a deception of others. Very difficult to deal with a person like this, right? And I think that's the main thrust we're getting at with David's lament. I have these enemies I can't deal with. There's no way to compromise. We have nothing in common. Verse 4. Not only does he deceive himself, not only does he deceive others, but this is the preoccupation of his mind and the preoccupation of his life. In verse 4, he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. The image you get is when he lays down to sleep at night, his last thoughts are how to carry out his wicked schemes, how to carry out his deceptions. And when he rises up in the morning, he rises up with a spring in his step, ready to carry out the schemes that he's been developing the night before. This is a comprehensive picture of the wickedness of those who have no fear of God before their eyes. And just by way of contrast, I want to look at Deuteronomy 6. Because there's a striking parallel between those who do fear God and those who have no fear of God before their eyes. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so we get from Deuteronomy that the one who is faithful is to be filling his mind with the love of God and the commands of God so that, so to speak, when he rests his head at night, his last thoughts are on the love of God and the commands of God. And when he rises, he's got a spring in his step to carry them out and to teach them diligently to his children in, at every opportunity. Obviously, we fail to live up to this standard perfectly. But the dichotomy is there. There's to be a preoccupation with setting our minds on the love of God and the commands of God. But the one who has no fear of God sets his mind on deceptive schemes that he might carry them out for his own benefit. And so what, with this picture, what's the big problem for David in Psalm 36? The big problem is whatever the enemy is, and if we take the view that this is pre-King David, then it's Saul, and Saul would fit the bill. That you have an enemy that cannot be reasoned with, cannot be compromised with. This enemy wants nothing more than your utter destruction. This enemy hates God and wants nothing but the totality of who you are. And so you have this problem. David evidently is fearful of his ability to combat his enemy, his own personal strength, and has no way to dissuade the enemy that he might take a different course. In other words, you're trapped. You're pinned against a wall with a beast staring you down. You don't negotiate with beasts. There's just instinct. Killer instinct. And so there's a despair, right? What can be done? What can be done in and of myself? And I suspect, especially depending on how much we plug into the news, that this feeling might come upon us at times, even in our own period, as we witness a cultural decline in real time, witness the rise of many people in power that really have a similar mentality, that there is no compromise. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You will be made to care. You will be made to submit. And we feel that sense of dread. What can be done? What do I do? And we ask, what does David do? Because David does not give in to despair. But David also does not look to himself or other men. He doesn't start scheming and trying to hatch a plan of how he might subvert his enemies. At least not in this psalm. But the hard gear shift is to take his eyes away from his enemies and look to God. And again, that hard gear shift is instructive to us. When we experience this despair because of trials outside of us, we could be much more benefited rather than to fret and obsess over how whatever we're facing is just too big for us. We make that hard gear shift and look to the God who's bigger than anything we're facing. This is what David does. 
And he reflects upon the steadfast love of God and how pervasive it is, how precious it is, and how persistent it is for the rest of the psalm. And that's where we're going to go. Verses 5 and 6. David says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the, cl- the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O God. Now, a couple things I think are helpful to observe. One, this is all natural theology, right? He's looking to the heavens. He's looking to the clouds. He's looking to the mountains, to the great deep. This is all natural theology. And it's pointing to the immensity of God. And not just the immensity of God, but the immensity of God's steadfast love. As high as the skies are, the heavens, higher still is God's steadfast love. As high as the clouds are, higher still is God's faithfulness. As high as the peaks of the mountains are, higher still is God's righteousness. As deep as the deepest ocean trenches are, deeper still are God's judgment. Look at the great verticality of this. All of this is vertical language. I don't think the mountains are a reference to anything but the vertical nature because everything else is vertical. And so we're looking at how high and lifted up all of God's steadfast love is. And and unfathomable does His steadfast love stretch. But verticality is used in a way that might confuse us elsewhere. In Isaiah 6, and we've referenced this in our Doctrine of God series multiple times, when we consider who God is, we begin by considering He is not fundamentally like me. He is fundamentally different from me. He is high and lifted up. We see this in Isaiah 6. We can turn there real quick. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So in Isaiah 6, the verticality is meant to emphasize separateness, differentness, otherness, unapproachableness. And you see this all through Isaiah 6. Like, God is high and lifted up. The seraphs, they cover their eyes and their feet. Why? Because separation must be there. God is described as holy three times, set apart, unique. The house is filled with smoke. Another form of separation between the creator and creature. And Isaiah utters the only appropriate thing to utter in this context. Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And once he is purified, then he can be in the presence of God. But is this the sense we're to take all this verticality in Psalm 36? That, well, God's steadfast love is high, but does that mean it's like high and outside of my reach? Separate from me? And the answer, I think, is emphatically no. 
what we're looking at in Psalm 36 is not a high and lifted up separateness, but something that is so pervasive that it extends even to the highest heavens, even above the clouds, even above the mountains, even to the deepest ocean trench. It pervades and is everywhere. can't get away from it, even if you wanted to. Which is why we looked at Psalm 139 this morning. And Psalm 139 is so helpful when we consider this idea, the omnipresence of God, but not just in His presence, but in our context, considering His steadfast love. Starting in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And I know he says at the beginning, where shall I flee from your presence? But I think the real crux of it is when you get to verse 11. And it's not like he's bothered by God's presence and can't, and can't get away from it fast enough and he's seeking places to hide. It's more of an expression of anywhere I go, anywhere I find myself, there your hand shall lead me, in verse 10. And your right hand shall hold me. There's nowhere I can go where your steadfast love is not upon me. And I think this is the idea we're getting at in Psalm 36 with the pervasiveness of God's steadfast love. It permeates all creation. And wherever God's people find themselves, they find that God's steadfast love is upon them and near. When we consider in Isaiah 6, the seraphs say, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's as if we could say, or see David saying, it'd be one word in Hebrew, the chesed, but chesed, chesed, chesed. The whole earth is full of His chesed, His steadfast love. The whole earth is full of it. You can't get away from it even if you wanted to. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. We see that is so pervasive. God's steadfast love is so pervasive that man and beast you save, O Lord. And it's possible, I saw some commentators think, maybe this is a reference to the Genesis flood that where literally man and beast are saved from the wrath of God. That may be kind of a picture that we're getting at here. But I think the application is closer to what we see in Matthew 6. What does Jesus say when He tells His people not to worry? Why should they not worry? Because God feeds the sparrows and takes care of them. They neither gather, nor sow, nor bring into barns, but the Lord God takes care of them. How much more will He take care of you? Oh, you of little faith. And so when He saves man and beast... Well, if he saves the beast, how much more is he going to save his people? How much more is he going to love his people? That his love is so pervasive that it even extends to beasts. How wonderful. We could say how precious this should be to us. And it's, it's amazing. We could think, well, David, you could stop here. 
But David doesn't stop here. And he goes on in verses 7-9. through nine, says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Now, first thing to notice, we were in natural theology before. We have left natural theology now. We're now entering into the realm of we can only know these things by special relationship. We're not talking about mountains and trees necessarily anymore. Now we're talking about the children of mankind knowing by relationship the refuge of God under His wings. Feasting at His house. Relationship. When we see the preciousness of God's steadfast love, we see the refuge to be found in God's steadfast love. We see the abundance to be found in God's steadfast love. And we see life and light in God's steadfast love. So when we consider the refuge to be found there, our minds might go to something like Psalm 118, verses 5-7, through which says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. That wonderful line, or that question, what can man do to me? And for David, cornered by these wicked people that have no fear of God before their eyes, full of deceit, what can, what can man do to me? Well, the answer is only what God ordains that they do to me. Nothing more, nothing less. Martin Luther is right in rejoicing that the enemy of our souls, the devil, is God's devil. He can't move a finger without the permission of the Father. We see this in Job, do we not? In the beginning, the heavenly beings come in and the Lord brags on Job, talking about how righteous of a man he is. The devil accuses him to his face and has to get permission from God to do what he will do. What can man do to me? Nothing outside of the will of God. Nothing. And the wonderful thing about that is we know that God wills all things for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to their purpose. So we know theologically, even if it's very hard to believe in the nitty-gritty of life, but we know theologically that even our worst enemies can only, by God's grace, do good to us. There's no safer place to be than in the sheltering wings of God's steadfast love. When we consider the abundance found in God's steadfast love, the image comes to my mind, what if, what if you were invited? You get, oh, I don't know, be ridiculous about this. You get like a gold envelope with a gold letter etched in it. Come to Jeff Bezos' house. I'm having a party in your honor and I'm pulling out all the stops. Money is no object. Could you imagine what you're in for? <laughs> like, you show up at this party. I, I don't, maybe I don't even want to imagine <laughs> what is possible with the wealth of some of the richest people in the world throwing a party 
on my behalf. But the image that we get here is that the Lord showers His abundance upon us who owns all things. This word delights here is a really interesting word. Um, in 2 Samuel 1.24, this word shows up. Your daughters of Israel, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. David is giving Saul's eulogy. He commands the daughters of Israel to weep for Saul, who clothed you, and here's our word translated luxuriously, in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. So you get this idea, this is a very uh, extravagant word. Translated luxuriously, translated delights. In Jeremiah 51, our word shows up again. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies, is the word. And this is our word that shows up again. He has rinsed me out. And so we have this river of delights, rivers of luxury, liver, or not liver, river of delicacies. What's even more interesting is that the root word is from Eden. So the the thought connection is all this stuff is like Eden. And so you get this idea that this abundance is taking us back to paradise. We have everything we could possibly need. Everything we could want with a godly will. Now, this doesn't mean that David is a faith or word of faith prosperity gospel guy, especially if this is during Saul's chasing of him. He's living a very poor life. He's hiding in caves, hoping that Saul passes by and doesn't choose to investigate the particular cave he's sleeping in. But he is saying, man, God gives me so much more than I deserve. He gives me everything I need. And I trust him completely to provide everything that I have and everything I need. I'm reminded of Psalm 23, where we read, you know, it begins with the image of shepherd, but then it moves to the image of a host. And in verses 5 through 6, this, David says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So we have a lot of similarities with this psalm. My enemies are there. They hate me. I can't compromise with them. I can't offer them anything that would cause them to stop. But a table is prepared before me in the midst of my enemies. And I'm safe under the refuge of God's wings. And more than that, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I have more than I could need. More than I could ask for. God is so much better to me than I deserve. We see these ideas crescendo in the declaration that life and light are found in the steadfast love of the Lord. Those who have no fear of God before their eyes cannot touch the fountain of life or darken the light of the Lord. If the Lord wants you to live and He has a purpose for you, you're invincible. It's one of the wonderful things we've seen in the ministry of Elijah. He was a very bold prophet. He knew he had a mission from God and that the kings of Israel couldn't do anything to him as long as the Lord had use of him. 
And he knew if the Lord was done with him, then he goes, then he's done. And it's all good. Life and light itself are in the Lord. And we're brought back to that wonderful thought. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In the grand scheme of things, nothing. Man can do nothing to me. And again, we think, wow, that was wonderful. But David is not done yet. And there's still more to say. In verse 10, we see, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Now, just to make a couple observations right away, this is the first time David's really making a petition here. So far, it's just been praise. This is the God I serve. This is who I'm turning my eyes to. This is who I trust in. And now he finally begins to make petition. And he doesn't begin with petition for himself. He makes a plural petition. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Now, of course, he includes himself in that. But he's praying for God's steadfast love to persist for all of God's people. Continue to shower your love on your people. And we do see this is an exclusive love. This love does not contain every human being that exists because it's steadfast love to those who know you. And we know in the context of this psalm, it began with there's those who have no fear of God before their eyes. And so we know that There's those who have no fear of God before their eyes. And there are those who know Him. And God's steadfast love is on those who know Him. him. And yet we'll see at the end of the psalm the fate of those who have no fear of God before their eyes. David appeals for his people and himself. And when we come to verse 12... When we come to the end, those who have no fear of God before their eyes, there the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. And then we could add, never to afflict God's people again. David no longer has to fret over these that hate him, want to consume him, and will take no compromise or half measures or anything that might dissuade them from their course, the Lord will deliver him where there seems to be no deliverance. When we consider what can man do to me, David turns his eyes away from his enemies and fretting over them. And the whole rest of the psalm is, I'm going to look to the Lord and I'm going to celebrate who He is. I'm going to worship who He is. And I'm going to trust Him. And this would be wonderful in and of itself if we stopped here. But we're on the other side of the cross. 
And we have much more that we can say. And we can begin by asking a question, well, how does the New Testament use this psalm? Does the New Testament use this psalm? Well, it does. And you may have already been triggered in your memory by it, but it's in Romans 3. And I'll ask you to turn with me to Romans 3. When David begins by talking about the wicked and defines them as those who have no fear of God before their eyes, we get this image that this is wicked King Saul and the apostate Jews. Or it's those wicked uncircumcised Philistines with their freakish giants and extra digits on their fingers and feet. But how does Paul take this? Paul begins in chapter 3 in verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And here it is. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Quotation from Psalm 36, verse 1. How is Paul applying what David is saying? He's saying it's not those wicked, uncircumcised Philistines. It's you outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, this is us. We are the wicked who revel in self-deception, hiding our iniquity that it might not be found out and hated. Deceiving others that we might make ourselves look better and try to spare the illusion that I am really better than I am. Outside of Christ, all we live for is self-promotion. Our last thoughts are how I can gain before I rest my head at night. And my first thoughts when I rise up are how I can bring these plans to pass. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And when we're left here, we, well, how does Psalm 36 end? Those who have no fear of God before their eyes are to be thrust down, never to rise again. And this is the fate of all who are outside of Christ. This was the fate that we had earned for ourselves by our sin. We deserved to be thrust down, never to rise again. But wonderfully, Romans 3 doesn't end here, it goes on. That wonderful conjunction. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We see the steadfast love of God offered as a gift to God's people to rescue them from this fate that we do deserve. And so if we reflect, what can we say? What can we say about the steadfast love of God as those on the other side of the cross? What about the pervasiveness of the steadfast love of God in Christ? We know that God's love is so pervasive that it brings in people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We know that God's love is so pervasive that it brings in people from every social class, men and women alike, and makes us all one in Christ. We revel that God saves man and beast alike. When we consider ourselves and our former sins, could we, I think the word beastly can very much apply. Driven by our bondage to sin. Driven by our bondage to serve our own selfish desires. It's uh, instinctive. Which is how beasts operate. By instinct. But we praise God that his steadfast love is so pervasive that he would even save wretched beasts like you and me. What can we say about the preciousness of God's steadfast love in Christ? We can say that it is so precious that it required the blood of God to procure for us. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We can say that what may have been sanctified imagination for David when he's describing eating from the river of lights, this is going to be literal in the new heavens and new earth. This is our hope. If you look at Revelation 22, I, I love how many parallels are here between these couple verses in Revelation 22. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp, or son, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See a river of life, a fountain of life, a river of delights, a new Eden. We see the abundance from a tree that's always bearing fruit. There is no out of season for this tree. See a fountain of life, and that the light of the world himself will be there with us, and there will be no darkness. All these things we see in Psalm 36 that David's talking about, that's our hope. 
And so we look forward in hope and we know that in the time present, we're given all that we need. All of our sins are paid for, past, present, and future. We're given the abundance of God's grace. What can we say about the persistence of God's steadfast love in Christ? He's persistent enough to pass over the former sins of the Old Testament saints, as we read in Romans 3. Because they weren't forgiven because they slayed a goat. Their sins weren't washed away because they killed a bull. Their sins were washed away because they had faith that in doing this, God would provide what was needed to really wipe away their sins. And God did in Christ. And so the former sins were passed over until in Christ, those Old Testament sins were obliterated and their faith was realized. God's steadfast love is persistent enough to cover all of our sins as we look back to Christ's atonement in faith. And while all humanity deserved to be thrust down, never to rise again, we see that Christ was thrust down so that in Him we might rise again with Him. Do you believe in the persistence of God's steadfast love in Christ? Do you struggle to believe in the persistence of the steadfast love of God in Christ? How about when that sin that you continue to wrestle with, you hate it, but it continues to knock, and there's failure again and again. Is God's steadfast love persistent enough for that? Is it pervasive enough for that? Is it precious enough for that? We're so often looking for assurance in ourselves based on how good I am at slaying my sin, how faithful I am with my Bible reading and whatever else you might want to pick. But I think the Scriptures teach us that if we want assurance, we need to do that hard gear shift. Look away from ourselves. Look away from others. Look up to Christ. Reflect on the pervasiveness of His steadfast love. The precious blood by which His steadfast love was procured for us. The relentless persistence of the Good Shepherd who leaves the 99 to chase down the one. We sang this morning, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It's not a trust in myself. I don't trust myself. I'm prone to wander. Lord, take my heart and seal it. John MacArthur has so helpfully said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Amen. And I hope, I hope there, that none of us would be so arrogant as to think, well, I could keep it. I could take a stab at keeping it myself. We are utterly dependent upon a perfect Savior, and there's no better way to be dependent. Luther has the wonderful line that when I look at myself, I don't know how I can be saved, but when I look at Jesus, 
I don't know how I can be lost. When we look up with the Israelites, the bronze servant, we lived. When we turn our eyes to other things, well, no wonder we fret and despair because there's no hope to be found there. Our only hope is in looking up to the steadfast love of God. And so as we turn our eyes to the Lord's table, in a sense, this is what we're doing. We're turning our eyes to the steadfast love of God as we remember who our Lord is, what He has done, and what He has made us in Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it's we we barely touched. Your steadfast love is so deep, so high, so pervasive. I pray that you would bless us with a small glimpse. Bless us to cling to you in hope, to turn our eyes on you. and to hope in you alone. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.